The final four episodes of All the President's Minutes on One Heat Minute Productions feed are brought to you by Belly Catering. Bellycatering.com.au is where you can find one of Sydney's greatest catering companies. They've pivoted to home delivery, but they're getting back. Some catering gigs, they're coming back. We love you, Bella Catering. We love you, Glenna Maria, and the entire family and team. Thank you so much for being on this ride with us this entire year. 137 episodes, 120 plus hours of discussion of this 1976 masterpiece would not be, basically would not have been able to be done without you. So thank you so much. Also brought to you by everything we're doing on One Heat Meter Productions. Increment Vice has just wrapped up its 45 episodes. It came from the deep. An audiobook and after show in its very own feed is happening. Of course, Miami Nice still continues popping into your feed sporadically to inject a little bit of Colin Farrell into your life and some gong lead dancing and some terrific Katie Walsh, Maria Lewis, Travis Woods, Kat Corbett, the entire team at One Minute Productions. Thanks you. Now here's the goddamn story. And now that I've made the film, I... It's impossible for me to imagine making the film without Bob and Dustin. And what happened was the insecurity is there, the fear is there. I mean, the scenes with Deep Throat, when you see Bob, who... Bob is intimidated by Deep Throat. He's afraid of asking the wrong questions. You feel it in his relationship with Bradley. You feel them as young men struggling with something that is way beyond anything they've ever touched in their lives and possibly beyond anything they ever will touch in their lives and trying to measure up to what is demanded of them. And that's part of the fascination of the film. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. It's episode 136. There is less than two minutes to go before credits. This is the person who's talking the last full minute of this show. And if people have listened to One Heat Minute, you would know that um, as part of a gargantuan four-part uh, aperitif to Michael Mann coming onto the show, I invited one of the great fans of the show that had been such an amazing supporter. Um, that person was John Glenn, who you would have heard recently on one of our episodes. But this time, I haven't... I just want to call him a, what he is, a mammoth supporter of the show. And as someone who I've been having a dialogue since he discovered the show, having a dialogue with that is almost like my sanity check of how good the show is going. Because if, if, if this guest and I are emailing back and forth fun things or talking about stuff, it means that I'm doing good. When I do these shows, I do them for the people out there who see this beacon the brightest and go, holy shit, this is a movie that I'm as obsessed with as anyone else in the world. I never even imagined that there would be someone out there that's as obsessed with this movie as me. And so when I find those kinds of people, I want to talk to them on this show. Um, As everyone would know by now, Jay and Alexander is part of the show um, in the final episode. So I hope you're looking forward to that. I know my guest is who I'm talking to today, but my guest also, because I literally have the best supporters in the whole world, manually hacked a teletype machine, interface it with his computer for his own amusement and started having a teletype come out of the headlines of the news of the day. And then because he's just an incredibly generous human being with his time, went and then hacked that thing again to make a teletype that would announce the final parts of this show. You would have seen parts of the first bits of that by now on social media. It's my distinct pleasure to talk to someone who I now consider a friend. 
who just quietly used to be, it was, is the former vice president of human interface at a little fruit company called Apple was in charge of a couple of things, designing the iPhone, designing the iPad, developing OS 10, you know, just those small fundamental cultural shifting things. Uh, and just happens to be an ultra fan of all the president's men. And fortunately enough, a fan of all the president's minutes. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome Greg Christie to the show. Greg, thank you so much for being a part of it. Oh, sure. My pleasure, Blake. So here we are. We're right now in the final moments. We've got the guns firing off in the distance, a 21-gun salute. Nixon is being inaugurated. We've got these guys clattering away at their typewriters right now. Tell me and tell the folks listening why you love this movie so much. Why is is super hard. You know, I, I think a lot of your guests have have struggled with the actual whys. It's just it's always been there for me. Um, this movie came out when I was uh, ten, going on eleven. I remember my sisters going to see it and coming home and talking about it. I saw it later that year. Watergate was a huge deal in in, in my house growing up. Um, yes, we were kind of a split family politically, and uh, I remember seeing the. Uh, the Watergate hearings, the Senate hearings when I was eight years old, just, just running that whole summer. And uh, I guess a few years after I saw that movie, I, I, I read the book for the first time. Then, uh, oddly enough, in, in high school, I saw The Candidate, Redford's 72 Great movie. film. Great movie. Which, you know, dovetails straight into this. And has, has one of the greatest final lines of any movie ever, which is... Oh, yeah, this became a <laughs> Phrase to us. What, what do we do now? What do we do now? It's like whenever something good would happen, we look at each other and say, "What do we do now?" You know, um, it, it the candidate's funny because I I I think it, it it's an interesting double feature with this with this movie. I mean, aside from Redford being in both, and uh, you know, if you listen to the commentary and all the president's men, Redford talks about you know how he discovered the reporting of Woodward and Bernstein while doing the press tour for the candidate yeah and uh, i my kids obviously have seen my kids are uh one's 22 one's 18 and uh you know i forced them to watch all the president's <laughs> men and, and and the candidate my youngest uh my 18 year old uh he says do movies in the 70s do they all just end do they do they all just stop <laughs> his impression is that you know uh in these movies, you like run out of film and then call it done. <laughs> <'Cause they're, laughs> you know, um, but he's, you know what, if you, if you have, if you're his age and like Netflix has existed at the same time as your burgeoning yeah. interest of things and like everything is serialized, even with the Marvel cinematic universes and DC and all that, like you okay. totally would go. Uh, so like, sorry, there's four more episodes of this. Is there not like, do we just, can you just clarify that right. for me? Or right. I, I totally get that impulse. I totally get it. I, but I love it. Do they just I mean, stop? Especially with the candidate. When the candidate ends, you know, are they squished into a room or is it an elevator? And, you know, and it's just Redford saying, what do we do now? And then it's credits. credits. I mean, it's like, it's beautiful. You know, God damn. How good is Peter Boyle talk about another actor who's, you know, just like all the wonderful actors in this movie, but Peter Boyle as a guy, as a cynical 
wily fox of a guy. Holy shit. Does he, can he act the pants off of almost anyone at that time in, in the seventies? My goodness. Amazing. And this, I, I, I think the only other movie I had seen, um, you know, so I was what, 13, 14. The only other movie I had seen with him, of course, was young Frankenstein. Oh, where is the monster? Name a better career. Name a better career than Young Frankenstein, The Candidate, Taxi Driver, and then Everybody Loves Raymond, where you can just like sit there for the rest of your life being like the source, one of the primary sources of laughter for just decades. What a killer. What an absolute legend. Holy dooly. But yeah, The Candidate, I had that, I had a weird experience because I'd never seen The Candidate until this year doing this project. And so people had always talked about The Candidate and a lot of materials are coming up, you know, those stories, you're reading all The Candidate, The Candidate. And such is life in Oz, um, especially during the time of COVID. There are some great, great old school video stores that still exist in some sort of like trendier inner city, you know, really? inner, inner eastern city suburbs. Yeah, there's a place called Film Club in Sydney who's still very much um, keeping physical media as a rental alive. And then libraries were closed. So I was like, you know, there's the possibility you could find some old stuff on libraries. But, um, but then I just got on the old VPN um, and started renting some things from United States uh, iTunes, right. and I, I got the candidate because it was just like I just wanted to put a few of these things together, and I just saw it, and I was completely struck by. There's a scene in the candidate, not just the ending that is wonderful, but there's a moment where, in the middle of it, Redford, who is playing a political candidate, the Peter Boyle is essentially designing on the fly. Like I'm talking to you as a man who's designing things, like he's literally designing and patching this person yeah. to be the perfect political mouthpiece and candidate and there's a moment where it's like you know to, to talk in the terms of like a science fiction almost is like he becomes self-aware and he starts sitting in a car talking to himself drinking his own kool-aid and he's driving along and i just i had to rewind that scene and watch it multiple times because redford going inside the game was so amazing it was like oh that's yeah, the moment he starts. He starts scrambling his uh, his stump speech, right? He starts yes. piecing different parts of it together. Yes. Oh my goodness! Wonderful. Fantastic. The other thing I really loved about that movie was the subtle way they presented the affair that he yes. was having. Just played it. Just I mean, you see this woman once. You see her again, and here in the twenty first century, we're thinking: Is she a stalker? Is mm-hmm. you know, is she a criminal? And then, you know, there's the slight reveal of him coming out of her hotel room. And it's just, it's so understated. And they don't, they didn't even mention it. They didn't even, no, she, she barely, I think maybe she requests for a photo, but I haven't seen it, you know, like presidents where I can recall things instantly or Pete, I can say no, yes or no, that that didn't happen. I think she may have one line. If it's one line, it's around a photograph. You don't really get, any words from it, but I just love his whole team just sort of see that happen. They observe it. They process it in their brain and then it's just gone. It's like, okay, that's it. Yeah, that happened. That's fantastic. Good movie. I love that. It Did in the seventies. I just really love to think they ran out of film or right, I put the credits on. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. And you know, I mean, of course the same is true with presidents. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I heard a great thing on the Slate podcast, uh, on the Slate podcast working um, with a, a guest that we'd had on this show, actually, who I was lucky enough to talk to, um, Isaac Butler. And he came on the show, you know, now is like 50 or so minutes ago. 
and he interviewed Phil Alden Robinson about the movie Sneakers. And he told a great story. Be a beacon, Blake. Be a beacon. Oh, one of the funniest, one of the funniest scenes in all cinema, that scene. But he talked about they shot an ending of Sneakers where at sunup in the Bay Area, the whole crew drive down in a car to a wharf and they grab the chip and they toss it into the water. And this is right. after the great scene where they relinquish it from Sir Ben Kingsley um, and they, they drive away. And he said he was watching it in the edit and he's like, this sucks. And he was, his editor was like, to Phil Adam Wimson, what are we going to do? And he goes, I, I want to see him use it. And so he called in a favor from a friend at a newsroom that said, when you finish the news tonight, can you, I'll send you dialogue to put in a teleprompter. Can you read it? have someone capture it there on film, put it on a tape, send it through me to via express post. He said, so we reshot the ending for $27 in postage. That's, was, that's how they fixed the ending. The ending of that movie is, is, is uh, you know, supposed archival footage, right? It's on yeah. television. It's on the television. So they, they got... Just a, like Nixon getting inaugurated. Exactly. So it's just like that moment where it's like, sometimes an archival footage that is giving you the information telling you what you kind of want to hear, see, but not like, but letting that rest in the, in the, in the sort of depths of your imagination or in the case of this film, because it's, you know, I don't think there's anything more exciting than the Republican party declaring their bank the GOP declaring their bankruptcy. And, and, yeah. and, and, and then, <laughs> I think it was like the, um, and then I think it was young African American fund or something like that was getting, um, uh, was was had received these huge anonymous donations and you know that that's enough like it's just this couple of florid lines about what they would have fun doing with that money and that's it it's beautiful it's just a beautiful little moment and in this movie right now obviously much more calculated much more pressure tested but robert l wolf like the ending of this movie was not meant to be a teletype it was it, and, and perhaps it influenced what the scene that we're watching right now it was meant to be Add a, a, a kind of uh, a poetic allusion, a recall to the beginning, which would have rather than seeing a helicopter descend and Nixon entering for this sort of State of the Union speech, a helicopter flying away with Nixon post resignation flying away. And the editor, Robert L. Wolf, according to John Borston, who was part of the show, said, That's too on the nose. Yeah. Let's just make it a teletype. Did Borston say whether they were going to do the same approach, you know, the montage, the headlines only in video? No, it was not going to. It, it was just going to like smash cut. It cut was, I, to, it, I, I, I Nixon don't. Waving goodbye. Nixon waving goodbye in the helicopter and the hel- helicopter ascending because we'd seen the helicopter descend and there's all that sort of florid. Right, Isn't right, it amazing? Right, you right, travel right. from the Atlantic. Da, 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 da. It's like Nixon resigning and then going up in the air. But he's like, nah, it's too, too showy, too, too ramming at home there's a better ending for this. And it's just these guys, him being inaugurated, them continuing to work. And here we are approaching the 136, the second last minute of this film, the whole last whole minute of the movie. It's still, it's still like media to media bookends, right? I mean, you start yeah, with the new definitely. media of television. Yes. You know, circa 1972, it's the new media. And then it ends with the traditional media. Old media wins, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. With the hammering of the teletype. I mean, it's not them typing. It's the teletype itself. So it's, you know, 
it's done. It's fact. It's being published. It's yes. not them working. No, the work has been done. The, 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 yeah. the, the, the foundations that they're laying right now allow for that beautiful chaos. There is a beautiful chaos to a teletype, just that beautiful chaos, bang, 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 just punctuating. It's, and you and I have talked off air um, about your project with this teletype uh, that you own, about how much I crave it. And we've even talked off air, um, which I think we can talk about is, you know, how much that a front page or the results of a teletype, you cannot beat them for how succinctly you receive the information in, and what is actually important for you to know to, to be a functioning and educated member of society. Right. That doesn't exist in our virtual world nearly in any of the same way. You know, um, I'd say about 15 years ago, uh, you, you as a consumer actually had more control over your digital content. Uh, this is a mechanism called RSS feeds. It's the yeah. same. It's the same mechanism that is behind, you know, podcast notifications. It was used for news stories, and you could you could subscribe to, you know, the Times RSS feeds or the LA Times feeds or Reuters, Associated Press, and these things could all be aggregated. Yes. Right? So you were in control of like your own personal front page, so to speak. And we at Apple, we had that built into the web browser Safari. There was a really robust RSS support, right, for people to assemble their own, you know, personal front pages, for lack of a better term, you know, for whatever the current news was. And it was just, it was just the headlines, or you could control how much of the, the story body you saw, you know, maybe it's the headline in a couple of lines. Yeah. And you could uh, smash that together, and you could look at one thing, you know, whether it was, you know, uh, across a variety of subjects, or you could sort it out into like different, you know, tabs in your browser. And then I think it was around 2012, Apple pulled uh, that support out of the web browser. So I, I basically built my own. I built my own RSS <laughs> aggregator. And it was just, it was just a simple web page on my own home server that I would, you know, go into from my computer. I mean, this is, or, or phone or iPad. And it was, again, just the headlines. And then I started, I don't know how much this movie, you know, the ending of this movie inspired me or just this notion uh, of a news wire, a traditional news wire. And then I found a surplus printer and hooked it up to a computer and got it to spit out just the headlines, you know, from this, these headlines that I was aggregating already. Um, I actually have every headline from Reuters, Associated Press, Washington Post, and CNN going back to 2012 archived. Oh my God. As a side effect of this, of this project. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to know what the truth is or see, you know, just <laughs> to me and uh, let you know. I mean, for example, I mean, from earlier this year, Reuters and the Washington Post were both re referring to coronavirus as the China virus. Not quoting somebody saying that, but they themselves were calling it the China virus. So, you know. Yep. This is what happens when you have the truth in print. You can't take it back. You can't take it back. It's uh, but, uh, Anyway, so then I just ended up finding this machine and it, it needed a little work, not much, but it needed some work and then hooking it up. So 
it clatters and bangs and the bells ring when these oh, stories the bells. Great. Yeah. You know, it's just, just a mechanical bell would be a great thing to have. It's, it's, you know, we've talked about it on this show a few times and why I'm talking about it with Greg is because, you know, there is just something about a great tactile physical front page that really no online version of any paper gets for, for some reason. And you find all these stupid things that you have to do. Um, you know, it, it starts being like, Oh, I, even though I subscribe to this and I subscribe to that, it's then actually going in following the, their Twitter feed sometimes. Some of the companies have got their own Twitter feed about what the headline news is. So then you follow that and you put notifications on your Twitter so that like you get a notification when there's a headline story from the publications that you follow, whether it be like the Times or the Post or right. the LA Times or whatever, just so that you can like go, okay, cool. And in Australia, my most trusted news outlet in this country is our national broadcaster, the ABC. So like ABC. For, for, I, I go to ABC News and that's my, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, you go in there because if you're on a Facebook and there are these, you know, Murdoch press propaganda sort of outlooks for everything. I, whenever anyone used to send me things when I used to have a Facebook since I've now deleted it. Um, but when people would send me things, I just go into the ABC and actually read the, the story that had the facts. <laughs> and then I'd go, okay, well, this is the story. Um, and, and move away from that sort of tone, but there's just nothing like that front page. All that no. stuff above the fold. We don't want to stick it inside someplace. We want it all we want it to be right on that front page. I mean, it's 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 clear from a design perspective that's what you want. It's clear from the user or the consumer perspective that's what you want. I have to think that it's somehow or in some way at odds with whatever business model these news organizations have evolved. Because yes. there's no there's no other reason not to present stuff digitally the same way that it has been you know successfully been presented for hundreds of years now i mean the newspaper was a pretty refined perfected form of of presentation in terms of you know information hierarchy the way stuff was laid out on the 2d grid it was the stuff above the fold or below the fold and you know or, or buried inside as as bradley says and uh you know the there's no technological reason. There's no design reason why that couldn't work on, especially the high resolution displays everybody has with them today. You know, Indeed. it could work. Um, I mean, but, you're pre you, you are preaching to the choir. I, I think that, it, I think, you know, talk, especially because you just, I think, especially in the time of, you know, COVID and this year and how, you know, the water torture of ongoing news cycles and then often being at home. And so there's no, you know, I, I remember, you know, times in the office in my old job, you would, you're usually like flat out, you're meeting with people, you're discussing things, you're working, you're collaborating with individuals like face to face and you're not looking at your phones and you guys don't have time to consume other screens. And sometimes you might pass by and depending on whatever the company's got on, there'll be something on the screen some kind of 24 hour news on a screen that you can see a little, you know, the ticket tape going across the screen and maybe get a, a headline. But that changes when you're at home, you're like second screening, con you know, second screening constantly. You might have two screens up. There are things happening. There's news running. You've got your options. And I just think that like, I would love, I would love the option to just go, what are the front page stories of the day? Really deep dive and consume on, you know, that few pages of, and all of that important stuff and then be able to go, bye. 
I don't need to see that. Like, I'll check the six o'clock news tonight, you know, like, and I'll watch on television or check back in for the, you know, the late breaking stories, but man, people just want that, just the facts, you know, they want, they want that. They want, they're yearning for it. And it's, and, and we're doing all these silly things to do, to curate it and find it. But I, I think to your point, something that was successful and perfected over 150 years is something maybe is a good starting point. It, it would seem that way. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, let's go to this minute, two hours, 15 minutes on your dial. Uh, we, we're in the post newsroom. It's a split diopter shot is where we're starting, which you wouldn't have it any other way, would you? No. Uh, a split diopter shot of the, the boys, Robert Redford, the lucky forty that got a uh, split. <laughs> You're in the top forty split doctor shots in all the presidents. Yeah, Gordy Willis, he loves the split doctor, but it's extremely effective here, and and just in the transition of shots, these guys appearing by themselves, then the tele, uh, television all constantly in the foreground, they're working. It, it, we've we've pushed in on these guys into this hum, into this noise. There's not only the noise from the television, the noise from all these other people, the noise that they're creating, typing out these stories. But now we're sort of drilling into these guys. We've been distracted by the 21 gun salute, by Nixon's conviction. Yes, I solemnly swear, you know, all that stuff. But let's watch this minute right now and and really just see the the signature of this movie and the signature style of all of the wonderful artisans. And, uh, you know, two Uber fans are going to watch this minute together for you right now. And then we're going to come back and talk all about This is our jump to 1975, March 13. Stans admits uh, guilt. I'm guessing that is going to say guilt. Good. So, so we we got it all here. We got we got televisions. We got typewriters. We got teletypes. And and if we had if we had talking and telephones, we'd have uh, <laughs> all, all all of the T's in the movie. All of the T's and uh, and ties, really thick ties. <laughs> so. <laughs> We get some thick ties in there, but I, I love the hierarchy of information here. As you said, so you've got the tele, televisions, you've then got the typewriters, the guys doing their thing. Um, dissolves edit choices are something that are like, they can be really rote and terribly used, or they can be so right. perfectly used. And I think here, I love the, the dissolve. Only, is this the only cross dissolve in the movie? There's one other one. There's one other one that occurs. Where? It's. I have to recall, I'm just trying to think of the moment, but there's one other dissolve in the movie and I'm trying to think of where it is. 
this may be, let's just say arguably this is the single dissolve and until I remember, but yeah, it's the, the, the choice for a dissolve is incredible. And especially one split diopter into another dissolving into another split diopter shot. Cause you can see the blur on the top of, um, of Redford's typewriter, but just again, the, the Woodward, the Bernstein badges in full view. Those guys basically right. feel like they're complete equals in the frame. It's just a great little composition to show them just tirelessly working, not looking at anything else, else except for what they're writing. And it's just great. It's, it's a, this is the, after all the other noise and Nixon's conviction, it's like, it doesn't matter to these two. They're just going to no. keep working. It's beautiful. Gone and they're, you know, they're facing each other, right? They're face to face, but set apart by yes. Jeff with the split diopter. We can see them both and they're just banging away on the typewriters. I mean, I mean, well, first of all, you know, I'm obsessed with the televisions, with the use of television. <laughs> I love, I love that you are. Yeah. And I love that. And also it's a great use of archival footage just in general. And, yeah. and also when yeah. they come in and how they're peppered throughout the movie, they're just great. I think, I think clearly in 76, it, you know, the TV stuff served as a touch point, a touchstone for, you know, contemporary audiences. This is what you saw. Remember you saw this? This is what was happening behind the scenes when you saw this. Yes. You know, but today, you know, almost 50 years later, it has an almost like Terry Gilliam, like a 12 Monkeys or kind of kind of feel to it because it's so different. And it's this other world. It's not the world of our characters. Right. No. It's, it, it's this mediated world inside the, the little box. And, and so it's just, it has a very abstract kind of feeling to it now. And the one or two times it feels like it's universally um, either for PR or for propaganda in the way that right. it's, in the way that it's deployed in the movie. And the one moment that it isn't like that is with that great female sort of talk show journal starts interrogating using the lines from the Watergate. Like, did you know that this happened? You know, did, yeah. did you know this? And, and, and actually asking really tactical follow-up questions to get an admission live on air. No, we did not. And, right. and that's of the only the, time. Of, of Kleindines, the of Klein, uh, then attorney general, right? The attorney yes. general who followed John Mitchell. Who followed Mitchell. And so Kleindines we see here in the teletype, but that Kleindines interrogation that happens is the other moment where you're like, oh, TV can help because everything right. other than that point has been like, oh, look at Richard Nixon. Isn't it amazing that he can fly on this chopper? Isn't that wonderful? And then the next one is like, you know, oh, all these non-denial denials from, from everyone, uh, every man and their dog, actual denials with Sloan, you know, like, you know, that, you know, recreation yep. of archival footage. Um, but that moment where that reporter has got Kleindienst on his heels and says, did you know that people were burning things? And he says, no, I did not. It's like, oh, well, hand in glove, our story is penetrating because in this PR, BS, propagandistic medium, we, they can actually ask the pertinent questions. And now, obviously, paradigms have shifted and it really depends on what network you're looking at and what countries and different places, you know, what authority they have. But it's like, um, those rigorous investigative journalists and stuff like that sometimes still only exist in the landscape of TV. In my country, there's a, a great investigative program that is like an equivalent of like a spotlight. It's one of the only programs that kind of exists right. called Four Corners. They've been going for about 30 years and they've taken down state and local government officials and they've taken down some big, you know, uh, you know, 
taking down some big fish on their variety of investigations and, uh, and really um, they're kind of one of the last ones doing it. But in this movie, it's, I love how you said the, the TV is the distraction and in the background, yeah. there's the real work is being done. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. And so we go from the, the TV to the typing and the typing and the typing and the typing. The whole time the guns are being fired. <laughs> yes. That's never completely out of the audio mix. It's, no. it's there underneath it. Even when we, when we switch the focus to the typing and then, of course, to the teletype. We finish, we gun, finish that 21-gun salute, Greg. We finish it. The gunfire just <laughs> continues, right? You know, and I, I think you said several times on the show, words are weapons, right? Yeah. The, well, they are for know, these guys is, now. This is a war movie, and the and the and the weapons are, are work. <laughs> yeah, and the guy, an Australian, great Australian satirist, Charles Firth, from our from our uh, satire troupe called the Chaser, a very famous troupe in Oz. He literally goes. This movie feels to me like an action movie. He goes, I watched it recently and he's like, you got Hoffman running through a newsroom. It feels like he's running through, like yeah. darting through, you know, he feels like he's darting through traffic. And he's like, and these guys are, these guys are typing and it feels like gunfire. There's guns firing every, because it just feels like, you know, the typewriters are the weapons too. The words are the weapons and absolutely the typewriters are, you know, the words might be the bullets and the typewriters might be there, all of the artillery basically that's just, you know, being fired throughout this movie. But I think it's a great observation and it's, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Goldman has the smarts to like build in the structure of like, because it is like you're, these guys are at war. These guys are are in an impossible war the whole, the whole time. It's a war for their morality and it's a war for the future of the country. And even though, Bradley shrugs it off very casually. He knows how important what they're doing is for this moment. And in an alternate dark timeline, Greg, you know, you'll, you'll hear this on the show is this, this, this would have been my emphatic, you know, plea to people. If uh, Donald Trump had won a second term is like, Hey, Nixon won a second term too guys and was inaugurated. That doesn't mean the work stops. It means you keep working. <laughs> it means you keep typing, but maybe now, you know, all hope would have been lost. I don't know. What a dark timeline indeed. Oh God, just the thought. Uh, <laughs> well, thankfully we're in this much lighter timeline. Um, hopefully, hopefully. And, and this hopefully movie, this movie, shenanigans. this movie, this movie, he still loves those shenanigans. Um, uh, I think as of today, the day we're recording, he's zero and 33. Um, so 33 defeats at the different courts uh, around the country. So zero for 33, I think is pretty emphatic. Not only that, and I think this event will be lost to the <laughs> mist of time, thank goodness, but he took part in a fake government hearing. Excuse me? Yes, he took part in a fake government hearing today. Giuliani held a basically a press event at a hotel in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, you know, not far from the Battle of Gettysburg, right? Symbolic yes. location. Yes. And the invited members of that conference were members of the Pennsylvania state legislature from the Republican party. And it was billed as a uh, state hearing, a, a Pennsylvania state government hearing. Is this what I've been seeing while I've been recording today where someone's holding yeah. up a phone where he's yeah. talking? Yes. And El Trumpo called in. <laughs> 
And so for about 10 Look, minutes, I've seen I the Godfather. I've seen the Godfather part two. I don't think they would have let Michael Corleone call in to the Senate hearings. I just don't think well, it would happen. That's because that's a, a scene that features an actual government hearing. <laughs> as opposed to, you know, an, an event staged for television. And for retweeting. And this was not, this was not, I mean, it didn't take place in the Pennsylvania State House. There, it wasn't organized by any you know, recognized uh, part of the Pennsylvania state government, but it was billed as a hearing. So we right. Have, Don't hearings we have take place in courts? Courts or, you know, um, Senate floors, editorial conference rooms, <laughs> right? you know, the Watergate hearings did not take place in a, in a hotel. <laughs> no, um, or a cafe. And, and those are actual functions of an actual government. Um, it's just bizarre. It's, it's, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, he's often called the re reality TV star. And uh, this is just unreality, but staged as though it's reality television. It's just, I mean, it just turns my stomach. It's been turning my stomach for, you know, five years since, since this guy's been on tv every day oh man talk about talk about wishing you could just go back to physical media with this guy because like yeah. you, you know with with sound bites and retweets and things it's just like he's been an inescapable force in everyone's timeline and it's just like get out of here i don't want him in yeah. here i don't want to listen to this nonsense he drives me insane i don't even live in the it's damn the country paper, we could turn the page right yeah, you just turn the page or you see a quote and you see that editorial policy would say, these are the things that this politician said and these are all the factual inaccuracies and move on. And that's yeah. how it would be. It's, uh, and um, I want to address something because I just brought it up is some people talk about this movie and, you know, you know, and ask questions, especially when you're in Australia, you know, why are you invested? Why, why would you be so invested in American politics? And, you know, I think I've answered that specifically about this show, but one thing about Trump is his brazen shamelessness has emboldened a lot of the same or similar practices with like conservative leaning politicians around the world, you know, around, and even if it's just approaches to media and fear mongering of, you know, this, this, what is ultimately there and designed to hold people to account, which is sort of a free media um, rather than sort of this propagandistic arms of, you know, uh, conservative power brokers. Um, and so, you know, if people ask why I'm invested is because Australia never would have had a prime minister like Tony Abbott, who is a flagrant misogynist and homophobe and racist as the prime minister had they would never have elected and, and who was also a dullard would never have a, a, elected a person like that. Had there not been the rise of Trump, you know, had, had that not all been in the waters around the world with the way that things are sort of going around, you know, I, he was famously lambasted on the John Oliver show for being a complete dope as well. Um, and so like, I think that that's the, that's the kind of thing when you, you can be invested is like, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't care about the man because he doesn't affect the way that I live necessarily directly. Um, like he would you and, and, and many other Americans who are fans of this show and who love this film. But it's like, man, 
he's emboldened a lot of really, really sort of dark shit that's happening all over the world. So is that unique to this guy or, or have previous, because of America's, you know, cultural imperialism, you might say, I mean, does this happen every time there's a changing of the guard? Yeah, sometimes it's like, it's, it's who is, and it's also about who you butt up against because as an ally, it's hard to be, it's hard not to be a progress. Like it's hard not to have more progressive values when there's a huge influential progressive in power in the States, like with the Barack Obama, if, uh, if Australia who's one of its allies is like, yeah, we're not, we're not in for this, you know, climate accord or we're not in for this thing. It's like, usually, you know, as a, as a key ally, they're like, ah, uh, Hey bro, why aren't you with us? You know, like w- it's nice to have you with us. You know, how do we get you with us and have that influence where it's like, it's like, Oh yeah, I really like those deplorable, uh, you know, offshore processing centers you have for potential refugees to your country, Australia, Trump, Trump's like, you're dealing with it. Great. You're just doing great. You know, I don't care if you, I don't care if some politicians are going to get taken to the Hague. Uh, you know, you guys are doing great. Ice, look at what Australia are doing over in, you know, over in, um, uh, uh, this Island over here. This is uh, this is really good stuff, you know? And, and that's what's scary is that like when you're butting up against people who've got a bit more of a moral compass, and, and are scientifically minded and aren't in for the bluster and, and in for the, um, in for the chaos, then it's, it's a much harder for like a, a prominent Australian politician, especially the prime minister to like go into the international stage and be against one of our major allies consistently. Oh boy. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you don't have to be sorry. What are you sorry <laughs> for my friend? Uh, you know, uh, our footprint's too big sometimes. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, it's it's if America casts a big shadow. That's why that's why the Dow Jones just jumped thirty thousand points because people are like, oh, thank God, Trump is like basically conceding. You know, <laughs> you know, they're like Biden is now actually kind of able to you know start planning things and do things correctly, and so it's like, oh, well, there will be a transition, and when he's out, America will get this virus under control, and 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 we'll have our normal friends back again. Um, yeah. And to be clear, what took place is that, you know, the president-elect was then allowed to know what the vice president-elect was already allowed to know because she's still a sitting senator. Yes. And a member of several committees that entitles her to be briefed on, on these things. So the president, <laughs> all, all that took place was an evening of, an evening of the score between the, the president-elect and the vice president-elect. Yeah. It's... It's just theater of the absurd continually. It's, it's a good time. And, uh, you know, four seasons is enough. I'm glad the show is canceled. <laughs> it's, it's like, again, exactly as your son said, watching um, your youngest boy, you know, we've been waiting for the, can the credits just roll on this already? Can, yep. we, 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 we don't want the next season, please. Credits roll. That's it. Thank you very much. We're out of film. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been rolling this thing and there's just no film left in the can. It's, we're done. We're completely done. Well, oh man. But again, this, this great transition, this great teletype, it's such a great choice. It's just unfathomably good in already what is kind of an unfathomably good movie. And, yeah. and yeah. And, and I mean, there's a lot happening here symbolically in the, in the, in the minute you're going from the television, you're going to the typewriter to them working, and then you're going to the, you know, 
there's just a few times that you see the the work output right yeah. there's just yeah. a few times in the movie you know there's a couple of like dropping off of the newspapers at, at the foot of the white house scene i love those i love those because i feel sorry then, for that guy i haven't talked about him but i feel sorry for that poor bastard that guy at the gate or whoever it is that poor foot soldier who has to carry that who has to bring in the papers and just watch Nixon's office, like shoot the messenger every day. Cause I imagine they weren't kind and then just drop it and get the hell out of there. I don't want probably probably by uh, August of 74. He's just tossing him out the window (laughs) over the fence. He's like, please. He's like, please tossing over the fence. Oh my God. Right. So, you know, and they're, so they're working, working, working. They're typing, typing, typing. Their work is never ending. And then just, you know, the unending stream of headlines. It's not, it, it doesn't go straight to the Nixon resigns, you know, no. which is, I guess, in, in the last minute. Yes. It's just, it's, it's headline after headline after headline. It's, it's almost an avalanche, right? It's, it's, just, it's just going and going and going. It's be, it's a beautiful thing because the tension, you know, it it is. I think what makes it transcendent repeatedly is that even with, I guess, a royal flush in the hand that Ben Bradley has at the end of this movie, knowing that these guys have this information, it's like you still got to play the game and you've still got to go through the process and you still have to do the work every single day and keep up that level of diligence, even though you kind of know where it's at. And I think that, you know, that's the, that's why I love these projects because doing the work of this show, if, if it does anything for me as a, a passionate cinephile and as a critic, it's to, really underscore literally every single person who every craftsperson that has contributed to this and, and to try and leave no stone unturned with any choice that is being made to execute something that's so rewarding on so many rewatches. It's like the doing the work is the thing, you know, this is the, yeah. the deeper satisfaction that I get, you know, as a, as a viewer and someone who creates these podcasts is like, I can watch this minute, which is gun firing, archival footage, multiple split diopters, a gorgeous dissolve, and then flicking over to a teletype. And I can talk about those six T's that we talked about in televisions and, and typewriters and, 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 then, and then teletypes and then really thick ties and, you know, and the handsome Rob Redford, just in case uh, um, that we didn't get there. But like all, all the choices that are being made um, to, to really to wrap it up and and so i think i can feel why people say it's anticlimactic but for me it's just the power and the potency is in the repetition and the fluidity that these guys are just are just there just emptying this out it's all there like actually doing the work is such a goddamn joy right it's just another day for them right nixon's being re-inaugurated and there's a 21 gun salute and uh you know it's just another day for them i love the fact that wood woodward uh redford isn't a touch typist i mean he's using you know two three fingers and and thumbs basically banging, (laughs) banging it out yeah i just i just love that touch i love that you know after doing this for as long as he has his his typing isn't really any better no only he's yeah. nine. He's nine months in the newsroom, and he's not a touch typer. And you know, 
based on the prep that Redford watched the real Woodward and it's like, he's not a touch typer. I guess I'm just going to have to do the, yeah, the thing. It's great. It's, it's so great. great. It's a great choice. It's a great movie. It is. It's, it's maybe it's one of the greatest movies ever made. I think so. I mean, I've watched this movie easily yearly since it was, you know, since I probably first taped it off of HBO. I, 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 I can't even begin to imagine how many times I've, I've watched this movie, even before your podcast. Yeah. You know, when I was trying to catch up and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it's just always been there for me. And, you know, whenever I'm feeling down about the system, I put it on because, I mean, I think I told you in one of our first conversations, this is, this movie is kind of a document of like the last time the whole system worked. Yeah. All of the branches of government, the free press, right? Editorial processes, all of it. The whole system worked. And the power, uh, the power of the party when they started to dig up these little fiefdoms that Nixon had created within their party because of the way that he controlled who ran the FBI and who was running the intelligence community and who mm-hmm. doing all these things, they started to go, you got to go. And then there was internal pressure. So it's not just the, the journalists in power and their opposition and the different branches of governments. It's the internal party conflicts of the morality of who, of how he's behaving. Cause it's like, you can yeah. say this all diplomatically, but sir, if you've done this, the American people, this, we can't have this reflect this way in the party anymore. And actually the party holding them to account is another thing that I can't get enough of in this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just this notion that no, you've gone too far. Yep. You got to go. You got to go too, too far. Like, and, and even, you know, the greatest double take in the history of cinema, I'm a Republican. <laughs> yeah. And, and often looking at, often looking at Redford, like what? It's like, yeah, it's it's. This is a time where two people with completely divergent political beliefs are like, yeah, no, no good. And they stumble into it, right? Yeah, it's got that Hitchcock quality. I Ordinary like- reporters stumble into the big conspiracy. Yeah. They, um, Hitchcock plays with that so well with like North by Northwest. That's probably my favorite right. version of that. It's just the, like, like fake names and fake, it's all good. Like, all, all, like assuming identity, it's all, all of that stuff is so good. I, I don't want to get us too deep diving down like North by Northwest and how wonderful that is and how joyful it is. But it's, but that's the other quality that this movie has, which is undeniable it's that it's so goddamn entertaining like you know as 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 authentic as it is and as meticulously as it curates every part of it it's just so goddamn goddamn entertaining it knows that it's a movie and that it has to move and it has to entertain you and these personalities have to do it and they make very calculating choices and i just i love it i love that it's freaking entertaining as well yeah it also has that great effect on me like when we get to like this point it's like i'm really like wistful and nostalgic for the old days of the movie right and so yes. it just forces me to like loop it because <laughs> it's like you know i miss the fun i miss the fun of them discovering all this stuff you know and 
you know, you've heard me say we are Woodstein. I miss the fun of like discovering that stuff myself, right? I and you know, it's just, I, just I, like being being the invisible sidekick of uh, of these two, as as all this stuff just starts like unfolding in front of them, and they start on peeling it back as well. Um, the you know, after our recent episode, episode one twenty seven, um, where I sort of got to imbue Woodstein. I really miss the beginnings of this movie a lot. Like I think about them a right. lot because I watched them so much and him doing that whole Howard Hunt ring around and finding out that he's in the CIA and it's just great. It's just so effective. It's just effective the storytelling. The CIA. Like, God damn, it doesn't get much better than that. And asking if anyone can speak English and Spanish. It's just like, oh, of uh, course this is a movie that hooks you in. That's like 11 minutes in. You're right into this yeah. movie. It's wonderful. So you, you know the uh, the six-minute long cut of Woodward on the phone? Yes, yes. Right? Again, it's the, it's the slow zoom. It's the split diopter zoom. I think in the commentary, Wood, uh, Redford says that that's, that scene, he's more proud of that scene than any other acting he's done in his career. Which is, you know, quite a statement from from that guy. Yeah, it is. But it's also like, this is what I can't get my head around. As a producer, he's curating the whole aesthetic and everything, the whole reception of the movie. So imagine then a six-minute monologue, essentially, where you're carrying the whole movie. And he's never necessarily been the monologue guy. He's the he's Sundance, baby. He just like yeah, yeah. laconically waltzes in. And even in, say, The Candidate, he's not like, he's the hand puppet of Peter Boyle and yeah. all those people who are building him. Um, and so him doing that and just also the degree of difficulty of that scene now knowing how it was done, you know, for I've mentioned on a few of the episodes for folks who maybe haven't listened before, um, I'll mention it just really briefly again. Is like Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh famously spoke to Gordon Willis about his setup. And Gordon Willis developed this split diopter shot that he could push in and zoom, but he would have to manually adjust the focus. And so many cinematographers were f- terrified that that would kill the cut because they'd mess up the zoom of the shot because you had to be doing it live. You had to be editing the zoom and pushing in at the right. same time to not break the shot. And Gordon Willis was the only guy who could do it. So he actually controlled the camera. And there's, there's Pakula beside you. There's probably people that are, excuse me, playing all the voices on the phone. And this is pushing in and Gordon Willis himself controlling this mammoth camera, editing it. It's like to have all of that going and then to nail the scripting, it's like it's a very, spe- it's a very high degree of difficulty and extremely special that it all came together. I really love the fact that uh, Willis was you know, equally fluent in being a, a conceptual artist as well as, you know, the practical artist in, in realizing his vision, yeah. you know, I mean, to, to conceive of the lighting and the camera setups is one thing to, uh, you know, execute on that vision is another. And to have both those qualities in the same person is, is pretty, pretty terrific. Um, there was a great chat that I had along the way with Monica Cast excuse me, Monica Castillo, a great film critic and voice in cinema, excuse me. 
and she talked about seeing Willis in the flesh uh, and talked about that time that he spoke with Soderbergh. And she's like, right. what you don't, ex- what you expect from Willis because of how artful his compositions are and how beautifully tonal they can be. And just so dialed into the mood of whatever the picture is that he's creating. You expect him to speak very floridly. Like he's like a, he's a, he's an artist, you know? And she said once what is striking when you saw him doing this talk about his career was how much of like a pure, humble practitioner he was. He was like, you know, no, this is how you create this functionally. How I could, you know, and his job was translating the the vision of the director to make it happen. But also then, as you said, like he's, he's a workman. He was just like a very straight to the point guy. So it's like, it's really funny because I'm, you know, the Gordon Willis that films Deep Throat and illuminates illuminates the eyes those um, incredible incredible eyes um in the scenes in the garages that guy feels like he's a like he's van gogh (laughs) he's like apparently just talks like a plumber he just you know he's just like oh no this is how i did it and this is you know this is what we're doing it's it's hilariously uh oxymoronic you consider his work in godfather i mean yeah the wedding the wedding there's, there's maybe not a scene that has breathed more life and continues to breathe life than that scene. That scene is alive. At the beginning of the movie, I believe in America. I believe in America. Holy shit. Holy shit. I mean, this movie, you know, this, this movie, Clute, Parallax, Godfathers. My word. Yeah. it's this has been a a special movie this has been a special podcast it has been special getting to know you and talk to you and it would be we have to do one pre-correction because i'm not going to bother correcting it on the show tomorrow we'll do a pre-correction to say jane alexander the lovely jane alexander was not even aware that John Borston had said and, and what, what is research at the post that they were actually in Bethesda, Maryland in the former home of bookkeeper, Judy Hoback Miller. She hadn't met her and she wasn't even aware that in this tiny house with this gigantic camera and you'll hear her talking about it in the next episode that it was actually the home of Judy Hoback Miller. And so when I talked to her, I actually asked, were you, I asked her, was that the house? And she, she said no, because she wasn't aware, but in fact it was. Um, so in the final moment of this movie, uh, apart from discussing obviously the final teletype moments and the power and the resonance of the movie, getting to have my own bookkeeper scene, I didn't drink nearly as much coffee. I'm just going to give a spoiler. I, I wasn't as caffeined up as Hoffman. I hadn't smoked nearly as many cigarettes, but uh, I get to have that bookkeeper scene. Are you going to hide behind the stairway? <laughs> I hid behind the zoom, the zoom stairway. I pulled up my microphone stand a little bit, yeah. uh, it, it covered my eyes, but I just wanted to say that it has been extremely special talking to you and extremely special getting to know you. And it's been wonderful to have this, the second last chat in this project with you, because uh, I think that, you know, creating these little beacons uh, and, and I intended that pun, creating these little beacons of shows that I do, um, and finding these people across the world um, that connect with what we do and connect with the movies is exactly why I do it. So Greg, it's, it's a really special thing for me to talk to you. And I'm so glad that you could be a part of the show. 
Oh, it was my pleasure, Blake. I've just really, really loved, you know, I mean, your your show has been a, a nightly companion to me, you know, going through the pandemic, doing the dishes in the middle of the night after <laughs> everyone goes to bed. You know, I'm usually behind an episode or two. And so, you know, it's plenty of time to get everything done. And, you know, just listening to this conversation about this movie that has just, you know, just run through my life. It's been a constant presence in my life. So to have this 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 kind of discussion about it, I think I, I told you when I first emailed you, I mean, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe that, you know, such a thing would even exist. <laughs> a minute by minute analysis of, of this movie. Um, so it's just, it's been really, I've just enjoyed digging back into it, watching it, um, and, and listening to the show. So thank you. Greg, Christy, truly the show's biggest supporter. Thank you so much for being a part of it, mate. I hope you could actually make it to this outro to hear me say thank you. Um, one episode to go. John Boston came on this show, episode 76. We talked about the 75th and 76th minute. We let him cheat because he's an associate producer. He was Alan J. Bacool's assistant on the film. A huge thanks to Justin Chang and Kenny Turin for shouting out to John about the show and, and John's generosity, his spirit and time to make time to be on the show. But one thing that John said was, the film in microcosm is the bookkeeper scene. That overwhelming pressure to unburden oneself of the truth. So in the final minute of this incredible film, I'm going to talk to a woman who made that moment. <laughs>